Hello, everybody. Welcome to CL2, uh, basically a series of our favorite episodes of Culture Laser, uh, recut for your entertainment and edification. And on this episode, we're really pleased to be revisiting our, our friend Helen Fang, who I, who I had the chance to meet when I was in Australia. She's the lead singer of a band called Nova Heart. Uh, Nova Heart, as you're going to hear from this podcast, is a super, super thoughtful, interesting, and dancey band out of China. It was one of my favorite EPs of the year. I just kept listening to it and listening to it. And, and I've often thought about the things that Helen has talked about in this interview, which I'm so happy to be able to share with you again. Nova Heart in particular, they've got a brand new record out, a full album. You can find new videos and information about how to download or uh, buy the record on their website, nova-heart.com. But in the meantime, here's Helen Fang talking about Nova Heart and a whole bunch of other things. Ladies and gentlemen, Helen Fang. It's the multicolor cultural laser. We travel the world for the boys and the girls. Casting parts of wonder and amazement. Multicolor cultural laser. The band is called Nova Heart. We are from Beijing. You might hear me with a funny Valley Girl accent because I went to school in California briefly. This band actually started uh, about um, two years ago. Just come off of another band. I had a bunch of songs that I had written for the other project and they weren't used. I was on tour um, with the band, my last tour with them. And then we closed off the tour. I was in Europe. And we decided to fly out from Istanbul. Hanging out in Istanbul, uh, ended up meeting a DJ actually from Italy in Istanbul who was a friend of a friend of ours. We had a great time together. I never heard his music before, but then I was like, hey, you want to produce all this stuff because I just left my other band. I've got more tracks. Guy was called Rodion and then we started working together long distance. Uh, he first said, well, if you're stuff sucks and I won't return your emails. Of course, we had been drinking together for three days, so he could say stuff like that to me. But we knew we got along and I'd never heard his music. And I was like, well, fuck, I just asked this guy to be my producer. I've never heard his music. And maybe he sucks too. So we all went home and we downloaded each other's stuff and we actually liked it. So it was good. because <laughs> It wasn't just like completely beer and Rocky based relationship. And then we started sending tracks overseas. In your biography, it sounds like totally mythic. Was it actually as mythic as it sounds? Like in the biography, it's a, like this incredibly important thing. Is it, does that just happen to you all the time? You go out and you meet people and you have an amazing time, and you're like, we should make a record. The mythical thing about it is that I don't. I, I believe that everything is an accumulation of cosmic forces. We call it the force. And if you're in the force, then you can feel the force, you live the force, and the force moves you forward, and then you can use your Jedi powers. I picture myself as Darth Vader. <laughs> so it's not really like... Um, I'm not really like Luke Skywalker. That might be like another band. So when you're changing from like... Because you were in what free the birds that was a massive band with we never really had a chance to leave china if you don't count hong kong so as a as an artist i mean we always like we got our passports and we're like we're gonna tour internationally and then like right when we were about to tour internationally like um a couple of my bandmates got hit up with some really bad family issues and uh, the band kind of just disintegrated because of that and we were like yeah we're gonna tour the world and like Oh, my mom has cancer. Like, <laughs> it's not so good. You know, like, so a lot of um, a lot of forces were a little bit against us there before moving forward. But, you know, they're still some of my best friends. But now with Nova Heart, I think it's like going back to rock. It's like electronic, but incorporating more of the rock and roll elements now because everybody has more of a rock background. Is that just luck from the fact that you guys are playing together and that happens then? Or did that happen 
Like, did the sound start getting made when you were sending the tracks to the producer in Rome? Or did it all start to come together more when you started playing live together and doing things? If you listen to our EP, it's relatively different from our live set. If you listen to the EP, it's much more of a disco-influenced music. And if you go to our live set, there's a lot more rock influences. When you change bands, does that change the writing? Does that change the process of making music? Because it seems like you've done loads of different things. You've been a DJ on MTV, right? Obviously, every single person here is creative. So you suck up people's creativity and it changes the animal. The sound was going one direction, and then if you're if you're not playing with four to the floor disco beats, and it stops sounding like disco because it's what disco beats are. And then you have a guitarist who likes to do much more psychedelic, like much more reverb, much more effects on his pedals. Basically, he's like a pedal guy um, with very few pedals, and you make a lot of different sounds. It changes the vibe because you're not doing scratch and funk and stuff like that as much. And then I think it's very difficult for any single producer or artist to come up with original things if they don't allow their environment and the other musicians to influence their sound. So I think it's not like session musicians around one artist, like maybe Alana Del Rey or something where the producer kind of decides direction uh, with a marketing director. <laughs> and then after that, um, everything just goes. It's more like we organically kind of came about. Um, and I think that for most good long-lasting bands, it is much more of an organic process than something that's very contrived. I, I'm wondering, is like because it's such a th- it's a, such a theatrical performance, and I'm wondering how much of it is in terms of the writing, I guess, or in the performance in general, is how much of it is character and theater, or how much of it is yourself in there. Depends on the day, and there is a character in there um, that wasn't coming out during the Woodford Festival, which is called Psychotic Girlfriend. Um, she came out just slightly, like she's pissed, like you know, like you were supposed to come home at four in the afternoon. You came four in the morning, okay, <laughs> right? And like, you know, you were supposed to be at a parent's house. Her parents made a big meal for you guys. You know, all of her family and cousins were there. You forgot to show up and you had your phone off the entire time. <laughs> I mean, so you got this iconic girl. Do you have a bit of a, there's a bit of a queer thing. There's a bit of a trans, is there a transvestite song? Yeah. yeah. We have, we do have a, a trendy element to our, our music only because of, like I would like to be reincarnated as RuPaul. Something that is, uh, what is it? Every girl has a little bit of crazy. Yeah, because I think most guys understand that, and I think most girls like kind of worship it themselves. <laughs> you know, like it's like they want to say, "No, I, I want to be the good girl. I want to be like you know, like you know, Cinderella. I'm gonna look last shoe and go to Cinderella was nuts. She was fucking nuts. <laughs> she was... Why was Cinderella nuts? Dude, I mean, she was talking to animals. Okay? <laughs> like, that chick is psychotic. Okay, but she got the prince because psycho chicks always get the best guys. The other thing I wanted to ask you, actually, because I think, I think it, was really int- it was a really interesting comment, that bit where you were talking about how we're taught to entertain ourselves, and all you can do is entertain ourselves. Was, that. Yeah, it was just an idea we've been... I, I'm, I'm really into philosophy and politics and economics, because it's a lot more interesting than talking about music all the time. You know, maybe as a musician, you realize that you're surrounded by people who want to talk about music all the time, which can be fascinating for like two, three hours out of day, but not 12. There's like this idea that we've all been 
the entire world has been kind of caught up in this idea of the cult of happiness, where our personal happiness is like so important that, you know, what we do no longer matters as long as we're happy. The thing is, like, it is completely not within our biology to stay happy 24 hours a day. <laughs> like, if you choose something that's challenging, then you're going to feel a certain amount of unhappiness because you're trying to attain something that you don't have. And therefore, you're going to want it's you're going to need, you're going to be dissatisfied occasionally in life. If you just constantly want to obtain happiness, then you can just take a lot of ecstasy until your brain becomes mush. And then there's a lot of people that I've met uh, coming out of the club scene in the 90s where their brain is mush. And they're really happy individuals, but they can't string three words together. And that's the cult of happiness. As sometime during the 90s, what we do became irrelevant, and yes, we can became relevant. I mean, what the hell does that mean? Um, the thing is, like, it's not about happiness. It's about a lot of different things. And it, every single person has to go on a certain amount of journey and to figure out what their purpose is in life. And there is a purpose beyond entertaining oneself. So I, I think right now our entire culture is based on this idea I had, I was talking to my uh, friend about it on the phone yesterday. I think he got bored and hung up on me. Um, it's called, I, I have this idea that we are living in post-materialism right now, where we are still taught to consume, but consume with taste instead of being active in changing our environment and actually doing things. So instead of like, let's say going out and planting a tree, I'll donate this thing by buying these potato chips that help me plant this tree. And it makes me happy as a consumer because I've done something. No, you haven't done shit. I'm sorry, you haven't done anything. And you know, you maybe you're happy because you feel very pleased with yourself for having done something, but you haven't really gone and done something. If you sit in the hot sun and you dig a hole, you're not going to be happy in time because you're fucking hot. You know, like, but you know, maybe you feel a bit of community, but sometimes you have to do something without community. Sometimes the, the people who are the, peer, the real frontiersmen, the real people who are pushing forward, a lot of times they have to leave their community behind because they have to go forward. And that all means a certain level and acceptance of personal misery. And I think that's something that like America has got a lot to answer for maybe like that, that kind of just, you can buy yourself out of unhappiness and I guess social media too. I think that ties into it. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that talk about these things and this notion that like you can buy yourself out of unhappiness and you can signify who you are based on the, what, what clothes you buy or what yeah. potato chips you buy. Right. right. Like, I buy organic, therefore I am. Uh, I <laughs> am the next. We're all organic. We will all decompose one day, except for certain body parts of mine because I stage dive a few times the wrong way. Generally, I think we are taught that in our choices of consumption, we can redefine our world, and that's not true. We cannot redefine our world as a consumer. We have to be, there's a difference between pacifist and activist. And the thing is that you can be a pacifist hippie or you can be an activist person. And the person means going out there, doing things, looking at things, being realistic and saying, this doesn't work and I can be unhappy about it. And I can get other people who are unhappy like me to do something about it. That's why revolutions can happen in the Middle East, but not in America, because people accept that they're unhappy. Well, we are shamed if we don't feel happy. We are told to take drugs. When you're little, like, and you go through your 17, uh, your 16, 17, 18 years old, and you start going through your depression period, you're, you're taught to seek counseling. You are given antidepressants. You are told that you need to have more friends. You're in, or you become a goth and everybody makes fun of you, which I did slightly. But like, um, you are told, you're shamed because you're unhappy. You're told that there's something wrong with you because you have human emotions that are negative sometimes. 
You know, you could, my mother, it's like my mother just died. Okay, I can be unhappy. No, you can't be. You have to get over it. You have to overcome. Let's celebrate her life. Let's celebrate her life, you know, instead of like, you know, mourning her death. And this is like the message that's being like told to every single person in our society. It's being packaged. It's not just an America thing. I think it's an Anglo-Saxon thing. I mean, it's happening in the UK. It's happening in other places too. I go around the world and I see it everywhere except with the French. Um, and uh, maybe they're in their culture. I think maybe it's the opposite problem. <laughs> they're like, cultivate misery. <laughs> cultivate misery. Yeah, but I mean, the the thing is, like, um, the thing is, we we are taught to control our emotions instead of trying to understand why we have these emotions. And I think that's the primary problem. That is the primary form of mind control, of society control, that's being used on us right now. Um, I think we are not allowed to openly evaluate things and see the inequities and see the things that are wrong and go forward and collect people around us that have the same negative feelings about the same things that are wrong and then in our eyes and then go and do something about it. Because if we do, then we're a pessimist. We're negative. We're not happy. And therefore, our lack of happiness is a personal failure. And it's not. Our lack of happiness a lot of times comes from our environment. And if we can't control our environment, if we're made to feel like we are so helpless, because if we feel this way, then we're wrong, then we're made to feel even more helpless. The truth is, we cultivate false happiness. People are smiling all the time when they're fucking miserable inside. I always think that if you're paying attention, you probably are going to be unhappy. Or not, and not just unhappy, but like super angry, super frustrated, slightly powerless. Once you see it, once you see how these connections are made and what it's doing to communities and societies and individuals, it does often feel like there's nothing else you can do other than just, like, rage. Right. Yeah? Yeah. You know, just rage. Like, we're taught to dance. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the disco. <laughs> it reminds me of when Frank Zappa used to talk about disco music. <laughs> Everybody just dance. Everybody just dance. The 80s never stopped, and anybody who says, even like, you know, there was a brief period of time called grunge, where people were allowed to focus on their unhappiness, but they had to internalize it. So I'm unhappy because I'm Kurt Cobain, I'm fucked up in the head, so I'm going to blow it off. And that, um, that was a reaction <laughs> to that feeling, I think, like yeah. that you just shouldn't, yeah. Instead of saying in the 60s and the 70s, there was a fucking lot of misery, but people were focused on their society, on their environment, and saying, what's wrong with my world? What is wrong with people's perception of it? Why is there Fox News? If you're unhappy, you're taught to internalize it. If you're happy, then you're allowed to express it. And that's the problem with Western society. We are not allowed to express our unhappiness, and we are not allowed to have an open debate. We can only feel futility and or ridiculous joy. <laughs> so, like, um, I, I think that's the cult of happiness, and I think it's complete bullshit. <laughs>
Have you seen these? Have you seen those Adam Curtis documentaries at all? Century of the Self. It's okay. totally what you're saying. And he yeah. just goes from like the 1930s and explaining Freud and yeah. how that turned into sort of this counterculture, where which was a community counterculture. And then you you watch the sort of counterculture get beaten by the you know like the DNC Democratic National Convention in Chicago. They're getting attacked <clears throat> by dogs. People are being beaten to death, and people stopped being like. That's when the personal became political, right. and it was, and then it got inverted, and then then you could market to the personal. Yeah, yeah, because like you know, but you do see the commercialization of of what we would call the love culture, and um, the fact that you know there's like with marketing, with PR, and this is the the rise of all this is because like at one point or another, the fascists figured it out, and then everybody copied um, how to market to mass audiences something, an ideology in the form of a thing, and then we propagated that with like things like The Sims. Like where, when you're little, you're given a video game which t- teaches you that you have to work every day to buy things, and the better the things are, the more you progress and the more points you get as a person. I mean, that's been so deeply in, routed into every part of consumer and materialist culture that when we rebel, we rebel into hipster culture, which is just post-materialism. It's like, okay, no, I am not going to spend my entire life working for a pair of new Nikes. I'm going to buy these old Nikes and look way cooler than you. <laughs> Like it's it's it's. <laughs> I'm gonna make my own sarsaparilla. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm gonna knit my own clothing, look like my grandmother, and I still feel so fucking awesome. And I'm, I'm telling you, the wool is organic. I had to find it in the store, like down the street, like five thousand kilometers. I spend the whole day biking there. <laughs> yeah, it must be really stressful to live in the Portlandia universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you know, like I, I love those skits in Portlandia where they like talk about how organic is this chicken, and can you see me a picture of that chicken? And they're like young and see how happy they are. So I feel okay with eating this meat. <laughs> like they're still like so concentrating on their personal consumerism that's why it makes hipster culture like so fucking annoying is because all they ever care about is what's on their body they have absolutely nothing to say and they have nothing they they don't take real life experiences because they spend most of their life shopping or trying to shop properly the only thing that can get out of it i think is our music right like the only way out and even that can often be a trap of commercialism i think it's completely unrealistic like you know to say that musicians are going to change the world is not something that's oh, no. happen. no we are we are messengers we are not that's all music is and if people don't understand that then it's because you know they at one point or another they elevated musicians to the level of god and that's completely inappropriate we are a messenger, but we first have to have a message to deliver. And we are not the person who had the idea. We are not the person who run the country. We aren't the person who slave away in the fields or the factories or anything. We're just the person with a guitar or a microphone, whatever the fuck they give us. We get on this stage and then we have to have say something to everybody. It's like, hey, let me tell you what's going on lately. We are just a, we're the town crier. Basically. The news. Yeah, we're, we're, no, we're, we're a certain kind of news that the news doesn't provide. And if you do that as a function, if you can bring something to the audience today that they weren't expecting and they weren't trying to see, and it just opens up their like tiny their perspective this much, like, okay, you did your job. But I think most of what musician life is like is that you encounter other musicians at festivals and backstages and you spend all of your time talking about your management, your record distribution, like where you're going to, uh, when you're going to tour next, doing your logistics, blah, blah, blah. You have like this whole entire dictionary in your head that has nothing to do with the message anymore. And I think that's why people that were really influential in their time, they didn't see themselves as the story. 
But now we spend 90% of our time trying to blog about what fucking food we ate while we were on tour. I don't care if you had a burrito with somebody famous, you know? Like, it's more like, do you have anything to say anymore? And I think 99% of musicians right now in this, before when you had a record, you could sit on your ass and go live life. But now you tour so much and you spend so much time maintaining your social media presence, I think that as a musician, you have less and less to say because you have less time to have something to say. Less time to even think about what you're saying. I find it really frustrating. Like, it's amazing, like, after a week of not being online or something, I have thoughts again. You know? I know, isn't it amazing? Like, you know, and imagine if you just went and did one of those Zen journeys. <laughs> just thinking, actually, I really hate no, those. Those things. ones, the 10-day <laughs> meditation things? Yeah, the 10-day meditation things where you're trapped in a place with 10 people who, like, speak in crypto. I think uh, I would cry a lot. <laughs> I, I, my instinct is that I would just, I, day two, I'd just be crying. You know, um, you were talking about active versus passive. Um, I was very privileged because my father, my, my grandfather was relatively important person. And then during the Cultural Revolution, he got, um, like, basically murdered. And my father kind of had it in the back of his head that everything is an illusion in China, like for a long time. So when he had an opportunity, um, and actually we were doing quite well. Well, this was in the 1960s. So this is um, during the Cultural Revolution, where they, Mao Zedong basically said, okay, all culture is bad except for this number of things. Everything else is corrupting because they'll take you, because culture is a corruption of the mind. Um, it's ironic there's like certain things I'm saying which kind of mimic the idea that it's entertaining you and pushing you into this imperialist mindset. Um, so therefore, we need to get rid of culture and wash everybody anew. And um, what it, that meant also is like getting rid of your teachers, getting rid of your elders. It was kind of like the counterculture, but in a much more <laughs> extreme way, where they gave bunch of teenagers or rule of the land and when the teenagers went nuts then they sent them all to the countryside my grandfather was jailed and then he was later um he died in jail uh, my father was sent to mongolia where he was raised basically as a guy who rode horses and herded sheep and he had like probably the best time of his life there spent several years came back into the city and got a college education and then he was working and he realized he didn't like this life he thought everything was fake because he saw things First through the death of his father and then um, as like somebody who was really pro-Mao and had like the red scarves and then he went to Mongolia and then he saw what it was real community was like in a much more supposedly backward like community but the camaraderie between people and then when we get back to the city and it was the politics it was the suffocating environment it was like everything he didn't like it so he wanted to leave and um he got himself out he got my mom out he got me out and then he went to universities basically did fellowships from university to university finding ways for us to have enough money to survive in, in the u.s yeah how would it, how, i mean how does it feel to be back and living there and in, in the in the country where your grandfather was i guess killed and your father fled is, is that a strange thing is it is there such a is there a, a disconnect is does that tie up do you see this thread you see this history and the way it's changing and the way it's changed. Oh, I mean, China right now is like America on crack. It's kind of a heightened materialism and also this kind of heightened reaction to this materialism because every pe- because the interconnection between people is a lot more real in China than it is in the U.S. Chinese people, when they are, have friends, they're not polite. They kind of take a shit on their friends all the time. I think the British do that too. Where like, you know, you sit there and you just like, but like you really just cut each other down for fun. But you know that it's all in jest and you're only at that level of familiarity that you can start really ripping each other <laughs> to bits, you know? Um, and I think in, in the U.S., we're taught and, and culture to be much more polite. And so like everything's great. Everything's wonderful. But in China, there's always, it's much more of a, community-oriented society. 
So when materialism kind of flooded into this, and it was really pushed forward by governmental policy, by the fact that it was a vacuum, so anything in a vacuum is going to explode at a much faster rate, by the size and the scale of everything. Sometimes you see it with a little bit more clarity on my history in the U.S., what everything means, because you see it magnified in China. Cultural revolution, what it did was it just took everything and it made a clean slate. So you had a white piece of paper for which you can write history onto. And then they took the American dream and they splattered it on this white piece of paper. And then all the dirty, all the dirty came out. Um, for people to like say, I hate China, I hate the Chinese, blah, 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 blah. It's because they don't know their own history. The U.S., every single infringement, every single problem, every little thing that you criticize about China about has happened in one scale or another in the U.S. over the last 200 years. And sometimes on a much greater scale. So we're talking about human rights violations. I guess that's the big one. Factory workers. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing new here. We did that. Yeah, and a much bigger scale. What about the Indians? <laughs> right? So there's a lot of things that are easy to forget over 20 generations. But in China, it happened over two. So um, it's that magnification of everything that actually makes me understand American culture more. Because you can see yourself... Like, you can finally see yourself in the, in the entire scale of this development because you see it happen right before your eyes over 10 years versus having it happen over three or four generations. Um, and, and at the same time, it also means that you see the future of the world in not-so-pretty colors because it's not just the problem of China or U.S. or Europe or Latin America or anything else. There's a certain amount of connectivity to everything, which makes it somewhat of a bleak picture if people are not active in trying to change that. And I think as a musician, I am most disappointed by the fact that music doesn't matter if it's underground, it doesn't matter if it's mainstream, it doesn't matter if it's noise, has become, in my opinion, generally as a harbinger of a change, completely irrelevant. was the easiest form of communicating something in code in the 1960s and the 70s because records could be distributed uh, across mass scale and the music was a form of encoding so it was a way to tell the youth a particular philosophy idea or feeling that they weren't allowed to hear from other media but now it's past its time because of technology you have the internet now you have other things and so I think music as a messenger from purely physical point of view is not as relevant but it still has its relevance it's just been kind of sucked in by the same mechanism that sucked in everything in the past it became an industry and that's what I feel working and living in the music industry it's an industry I have to accept the fact that I too am a factory worker Helen Fang, everybody. You can find Nova Heart on novaheart.bandcamp. They've got a super hot EP out called Beautiful Boys. You can get a copy of it online. Uh, and you've heard some of the tracks throughout the interview. And thanks to Helen for letting us share those with you. 
And I just want to say a special thanks before we close to everybody who helped out at Woodford. My gratitude and respect goes out to the thousands of volunteers who helped make it possible. We had a brilliant time. And of course, a special thanks to the press folk uh, who gave us an air-conditioned space to chat. We'll close this podcast uh, with my song number nine from the Beautiful Boys EP.
This episode of Culture Laser has been supported with the generous assistance of Creative Scotland. 